you, everybody. Thank you so much. You can be seated. It's so good to be here with you. It's back with my friends in, in New Hope. I've, I was supposed to be in, uh, I was supposed to be in Riverside, California today. And, um, and of course, things didn't work out. And so I got, uh, I got stuck in, in, in Australia. I got stuck actually in Queensland, which means I got stuck in the best of the best of the best of the best places. And uh, that's a really good thing. So I, I get to open the Bible today, and, um, and, and I, I'm very excited about that. Anytime you open the scriptures, you want to ask a few questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So I, I'd like to take a, a second and, and, um, and come to New Hope, not as a guest speaker. I think after nine years, I've, I'm sort of part of the family here. And, and I want to talk to you into the culture of the church. I want to talk about what kind of church we're trying to build. And I want to, I want to start with an illustration. It's a true story of something that happened in the late 80s. Uh, Americans are enamored with Australian culture. We, we love it. Um, if you want to make millions of dollars, just go to, go to America and create something Aussie-themed. Like if you opened, uh, we, we never heard of pavlova. So if you open a pavlova shop, you will go broke. But if you call it the great Aussie pie, you'll make millions, right? Because Americans love Australian things, it, it, particularly because of Crocodile Dundee and, uh, and a restaurant called Outback Steakhouse, which all they did was name steak after Australian cities. That's all they did. It's kind of a ridiculous thing. Well, <clears throat> Americans, we, we, um, we get amazed by the sheer size of things. Like when Americans come to Australia, everybody wants to see the outback. I try to tell them, you really, you don't really want to see the outback. If you, if you fly to Mount Isa, drive five minutes out of town, there, there you have it for 3,000 miles. That's, that's, that's what it is. But they don't, they don't listen. And they come and they, they, they get surprised at the size of things. Like my pastor is an old cattleman and his, his cattle property he managed when he was a teenager was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. Well, to an American, that is the state of Connecticut, right? That is just absurd. And this guy came and he was looking and he couldn't believe that you didn't fence up the entire cow property because how do you keep cows in, in, in the property? And, and of course, the farmer's like, well, mate, you can't, you can't fence up 70 miles by 30 miles. You need an act of Congress to you know, build your wall or so. You can't, you can't really do that. He said, what you do is, is you have a, a surveyor come in and dig strategic wells down certain parts of your property. And that creates water sources. And so if, if, if you have proper water sources, the cows won't vary too far from the water source or they know they'll die. And he said, mate, mate, <clears throat> if you got proper wells, you don't need all those fences. Which leads me to the book of Acts. Jesus in the gospels was transitioning the whole world from a fence-based ministry to a well-based ministry. In the Old Testament, there were 613 fences. Who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's clean, who's unclean, who's worthy, who's unworthy. 613 of them. Jesus had two fence posts. Love God and love people as you would love yourself. Be fulfillers of scripture instead of being right about singular verses, right? And this met with incredible resistance. Now, the book of Acts is the natural outworking of people who were affected by Jesus so profoundly that they never wanted to go back to the fence-based thing. But of course, when you're coming out of a fence-based thing, people who profiteer from the fence-based thing are gonna resist your efforts to come out of it. And the book of Acts is essentially this. People do amazing things. They get persecuted for doing the amazing things because it didn't fit the fence. Then they overcome it and then they do more amazing things and then they get persecuted. And, 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 then, and then they overcome it and they do amazing things and they get persecuted. And then a guy named Stephen gets killed. Uh, that, that's the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, right? 
And, and what happens is, is Jesus called them to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world. And by Acts chapter eight, they're still in Jerusalem. But because of excessive persecution that culminated in the murder of a guy named Stephen, they end up branching out, particularly a disciple named Philip. And Philip goes to a place called Samaria and starts doing amazing things that doesn't fit all the boxes. And he has an incredible encounter with a, a, a eunuch from Ethiopia. This is the account of that. This is Acts chapter eight. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This was a desert place. So he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of the treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated on his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Just 10 seconds of thought here. Here's a guy that rode a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem chasing something. Now that, that, that's easy to read over, but think about that. According to Google Maps, that's 3,853 kilometers. To, to put some Australian context on that, that's riding a horse from Melbourne to Mount Isa, turning right and going to Townsville. That's how far this guy rode a horse. And for some reason, he's clutching the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which leads to all kinds of questions. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join him on his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah and the prophet and said, do you even understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And, and the passage of scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before a shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from him. And the eunuch said to Philip, about who do I ask? Can I ask, does this prophet speak about? Is it about himself or about someone else? Like he, his understanding is so elemental. He doesn't really even understand who this guy's talking about, but he's compelled by it. Is, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with that scripture. In other words, if that's where you are, that's where we're starting. And, and he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, hey, look, there's some water. What's, what's preventing me from being baptized? Like, can I join your Jesus movement, you know? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now, if you're paying attention to this passage, you should have questions because I have questions. Like, like, here's a few questions I have about this passage. Like one, is there too much information in this passage? Like why include the fact that he's a eunuch? Isn't that too much information? Like, would you want the whole world knowing you're missing part of your anatomy? I, I, can, I can see the Ethiopian eunuch now in heaven sort of confronting Luke. Like, why would you write that in the Bible? What's wrong with you? You know Willard can't read over that and just let it go, right? Like, why would you do that? And why is he choosing to worship in Jerusalem? There, there, you, mean, you mean there wasn't a place closer than 3,853 kilometers? What's going on there? And why is he clutching the scroll of Isaiah? Out of all the scrolls that could have been available to him, why that one? Why did he ride a horse from Ethiopia clutching the scroll of Isaiah? What's so compelling about this? And is there any reason why I can't be baptized? Like, like why would he ask that? Because there was a reason. We'll talk about that in a second. And I think this, this whole passage confronts the book of Acts and it confronts us where we are today in this question. Are we gonna be a fence-based or a well-based church? And I can tell you that New Hope endeavors to intentionally be a well-based place instead of a fence-based place. And we're going to talk about the implications of what that means, because all the tension in this passage comes from Deuteronomy 23. So in Deuteronomy 23, there were some laws that Moses wrote about who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's clean, who's unclean. And it has incredible impact on this passage. This is Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, if you're a eunuch, you're not welcomed by God. You are not, can you see where this, this is creating tension? 
Oh, and by the way, no one born of a forbidden marriage or any of their descendants can enter in the assembly of the Lord, not in the 10th generation. Oh, and by the way, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. In the first three verses of Deuteronomy 23, you have more fences than Jesus had in his entire ministry. And, and by the way, Jesus's presence just in and of itself is confronting to this. If you check Jesus's genealogy, he's 128th Moabite. And there were certain questions about the circumstances revolving around Jesus's birth, right? And so what this passage says is that if you're a eunuch, can't be welcomed by God. If you're a foreigner, you can't be welcomed by God, which leads to this question. You have a foreigner eunuch now wanting to be welcomed by God, but there's a problem with the fences. There's fences that say, actually, those are, that's, that's a bridge too far. You can't get over those. You can't help that. Somebody hurt you somewhere. You can't help where you were born. And that's unfortunate, but the fences are pretty clear. You're a foreigner eunuch. You're not welcomed by God, which leads me to Isaiah. So he's clutching the scroll of Isaiah. Why? It's talking about a God that's willing to empty himself of his godness and suffer with humanity to identify with them. Now that's compelling. Now, what would have been on the same scroll just a few chapters later is this. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a home, a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to keep, be his servants who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I'll bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all. Even if you're a foreigner, yeah. What about if you're an Ammonite? Yeah, all. What about a Moabite? Yeah, all. What if you're a eunuch? Uh, all. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will still gather others to them besides those already gathered. Can you see the tension in this passage? You have an Ethiopian, a foreigner eunuch going, can I be in? And he asked Philip, hey, is there any reason why I can't be in? Now we got to understand who Philip was. See, there's two characters in the story. You have an Ethiopian eunuch who's a God-fearer. He would have been disqualified by the rules and he's willing to walk days to find the truth. But you also have Philip, one of the original 12 from a devoutly Orthodox village called Bethsaida. He would have lived by all 613 fences until he met Jesus. And this Ethiopian eunuch is going, can you think of a reason why I can't be baptized? And Philip's like, yeah, actually I can. There's this verse. And this verse says that no foreigner eunuchs can ever be welcomed by God. And you're a foreigner eunuch, but you want it. And and that Philip has to decide, am I going to be someone who's going to remain in the fence-based system or am I going to be someone who honors someone's desire and thirst? Am I going to be someone who's right about one verse in the Bible or am I going to be someone who does something more profound than that and fulfill scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you? And Philip's one decision to treat someone as he would want to be treated if he were them instead of being right about one verse in the Bible had amazing fruit. 65% of Ethiopia today identifies as Christ followers. Ethiopian Christians are indigenous. People don't tend to move to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian church today traces their origins back to this one eunuch. In other words, you never know we're being someone who's brave enough to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse. You never know where years and years and years later, two thirds of a country identifies as Christ followers because of this one 
moment. And actually, the book of Acts is an entire book about being surprised by how generous God is with people who are thirsty. Like, like remember, there's this one time where, where Peter's preaching, and it says, as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit filled the uncircumcised Gentiles just as he had them in the beginning. And this surprises everybody. Peter's like, oh my goodness. The religious leaders, even the people who were in with the Jesus thing, they're like, Peter, explain yourself. We didn't think God filled Gentiles, right? And Peter's like, you know, funny enough, I agree with you. I do. That's what I've, that's what I've been taught my whole life as well. What I've been taught my whole life is that God doesn't fill Gentiles, especially not the same way he does Jews. But we just saw it. And if God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who am I to argue with what obviously God is up to? Remember in Acts 4, it says they were surprised and in awe that God was using normal, everyday, uneducated people to do amazing things. Why is that shocking? Because they'd never seen that before. The entire book of Acts is what the world looks like when you're brave enough to journey from a fence-based system to a well-based system. Now, the question is, is what does that look like? And I have one thought on that. And then I'll have a bunch of thoughts on the next one and then a bunch of thoughts on the next one. But I have one thought on that for this one. And and that is this. The main difference between a fence-based ministry and a well-based ministry is a fence-based ministry tends to obsess with the question, are you worthy? And a well-based ministry simply asks, are you thirsty? Those are two different things. Jesus, when he was transitioning from fence-based to well-based, never ever obsessed over the are you worthy question. He obsessed over the are you thirsty question. Do you want it? Like he said things, let anyone who's thirst come get a full measure of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the Q&A at that one? Uh, what if they're eunuchs? Yeah, anyone. Do they, do they want it? What if they're Moabites? Yeah, I'm sort of a Mo- uh, it, it, yeah, any Anyone. What if they're a foreigner? Yeah, what if they were born out of wedlock? Yeah, in, anyone. In, anyone. But, but we have our verses. I know you have your verses. I know all the verses. I memorized the whole thing. And we can go through all 613 or we can be brave enough to fulfill scripture instead of simply being right about one singular thing. And we can move the whole world from a fence-based thing to a well-based thing. See, see uh, churches have a choice. They can obsess with the, are you worthy question? They can do that. Are you worthy? Have you kept the rules? Are you in? Are you out? Are you clean? Are you unclean? Have you, have you done certain things? But, 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 but that's not the question New Hope wants to ask. And I'm convinced it's not the question Jesus would ask. And I'm convinced when you read the whole book of Acts, that's not the question they asked. I mean, by halfway through the book of Acts, they had had such profound encounters with Jesus that they had moved the whole thing from 613 fences to four. Food sacrificed to idols, blood, strangled animals, and sexual immorality. That is a good effort. I mean, to move from 613 to four in, 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 I don't know, a couple of decades is really, really good. But Jesus's goal was for us to have two. Love God and treat people how you would want to be treated. And if we treat people how we would want to be treated, if we were then, we can do something more profound than being right about singular things. We can fulfill scripture and we can honor people's desire and thirst more than the questions are, are they worthy? We can honor their directions. Here's what New Hope, here's, here's part of why New Hope exists. New Hope exists to facilitate and celebrate every person's next yes with what God is calling them to do. Whatever that yes is, it's not, there's never a yes that's too small. We are here to facilitate and celebrate that next yes. So if you're an atheist and your next yes is, I'm going to consider God might be real. We celebrate that. 
We don't, we don't ask you to jump over more fences than you're ready. We, we trust God with us, but we also trust God with you. And God's meeting you right where you are. And if you go from an absolute dogmatic atheist to, wait a minute, maybe God might be real. We celebrate and facilitate that yes. And we know that when we trust God with you, the truth of it is, is that God is at work in all of our hearts. And if we're all facilitating and celebrating each other's yeses, then it's invigorating thirst. Because the bigger question is not, have you jumped over enough fences to be worthy? The question is, is do you want it? Are you thirsty? The question is, what is thirst then? I think, I think thirst, because you have to have language around that. No, no one, dis, no one can disagree with what I just said. No one can say, no, we need less desire and more rules. No one's going to do that. But the, the question is, is what, what does thirst look like? I think thirst is the critical element for trying to build what we're trying to build at New Hope. It's, it's, it's the question we need to be asking all the time. Do, do you want it? I, I think a lack of thirst equals a lack of teachability. Like, like when we lose our teachability, we've lost our thirst. Actually, the root word for disciple in Greek and Hebrew is student. One who's teachable. People who show up not with, people show up with the understanding that I have not even scratched one tenth of one percent of what God is yet. So if somebody has something to teach me, I'm ready to hear it. I'm ready to hear their point of view. I'm ready to journey with them. I'm ready for them to journey with me. I'm, I'm ready to journal about it. I'm ready to share my journal w- with somebody else. I, I want to be teachable. Inside that is humility. Like a, a thirsty culture is a teachable culture. A thirsty culture is a humble culture. The idea that whatever liberty we have here, we try to submit it to the higher ethic of love. That liberty is best expressed and experienced when it's submitted to love. People who just exalt their liberty at, at all costs with, in, with no regard for anybody else. That's, if everybody did that, that's anarchy, right? It's liberty is best experienced and expressed when it's submitted to considering the other person. Now, there's a whole chapter in the scriptures dedicated to this in Romans 14, where Paul says, look, if you can eat food sacrificed to idols without bothering you, then do it. But just don't do it in front of people that you know it's going to be a stumbling block. Like, in other words, be humble enough to submit your liberty to the higher ethic of love and consider the other person. A thirsty culture is a teachable culture. It's a humble culture. I think a lack of thirst equals a lack of responsibility. Like this is, even in the, Gen- in the Genesis poem, before sin even entered the situation, people found their meaning as a function of the, to the degree they took responsibility for their world. And the opposite of that is blaming, which is exactly what happened in the Genesis story. Everybody starts blaming everybody else instead of taking responsibility for their part. The, the kind of culture New Hope's trying to build is, is, is a culture that honors thirst instead of obsessing about worth. It's a, it's a culture that says, do you want it? Now, what does that mean? It means, are you teachable? Are you humble? Are you willing to be responsible? Are, are you willing to, to own it? To say, you know what? I, I have issues and that doesn't matter because I want it. I want to say my next yes. And I trust God with me and I trust God with you to do, be doing whatever he's doing to move us to where our next place is. And we were, we're here to facilitate and celebrate that next yes. But that requires teachability, humility, and for us to be responsible. I think a lack of thirst equals ambivalence. A lack of thirst. See, a fence-based culture is only concerned with one thing, conversion. Hey, if, if, like if I had an orange and I said, listen, our goal here is to make everybody an orange, right? And don't get me wrong, I, we honor conversion, but that's hardly the end of the story because a well-based ministry says, look, I celebrate the fact that you're an orange, but we want to hook that orange to the water source so that you could be the best orange you can be. That's two different things. 
Because what if you're a, like a sour orange or a rotten orange or you're a bit of a too ripe of an orange? See, see, a well-based ministry says, actually, if we remove the fences and lead people to the well, actually, that, that how you live today matters. For a well-based ministry, where, where you go to heaven, whether you go to heaven when you die is less of the question than, are you having heaven established in your heart so much today that when you do walk into heaven, you don't get whiplash, right? It's like, oh, I've been living like this for a while. This has been so established in me. Jesus never invited people to go to heaven when they die. Jesus invited people to have heaven so established in them today that when they do walk into heaven when they die, they've been living like that for a while. They don't get whiplash from the difference, right? That's the idea. That, that the culture we're building is a culture that doesn't obsess over worth. It obsesses over thirst. It's, it's are you teachable? Are you humble? Are we responsible? And are we passionate about the infinite possibilities to have heaven established in us and to establish heaven here on the earth? And that could apply to anything. You might be going, yeah, but Shane, I don't even know what I think about God. That's okay. Are you thirsty? Do you want it? Are you willing to facilitate and celebrate your next yes? Are you willing to be teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities for our world? Are you willing to do that? Can you imagine with me a church full of teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate people? That would be something worth going to. I, I'll speak for myself here, but I know this is true of the leaders here. I'd rather have hundreds of teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate people than I'd want to run a church of 30,000 unteachable Christians. That would be hell, right? Like, but a culture of teachability, humility, responsibility, and passion for our world, that's what we're trying to do here because at New Hope, we're less concerned with the are you worthy question and we're far more concerned with the are you thirsty question. Do you want it? But Shane, I failed just last night. It's all right. Are you thirsty? Are you willing to take responsibility and say your next yes? But, but Shane, I went through this thing in the last couple of weeks. I know. And I'm sorry for the pain that caused, but my question isn't about any of that. My question is, are you thirsty? Are, are, are you willing to take responsibility, be teachable, humble, and be passionate about the next possibility for you? Because if, if you're that, then you belong. You belong to what we're doing. Because the truth of it is, is whatever it is, the are you worthy question is far less important than the are you thirsty question. So my question, my brothers and sisters in New Hope, is can we invoke that thirst again? Can we invoke that desire that teachability, that humility, that responsibility, and the passion for our world. Can we repent from our blaming nature, from our belligerent nature and go, wait a minute, uh-uh, no, no. As a disciple, I wanna be teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities from our world because the culture we're building at New Hope is a well-based church, not a fence-based thing, which is more concerned with are you thirsty than are you worthy. I hope Jesus got bigger for you, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central. Scriptures got bigger, not smaller today. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.